Good morning. Our scripture passage this morning we read was from the first chapter of Genesis, and it was about the creation of man. Our subject this morning is, Who art thou, O man? And of course, you'll recognize that that's not a quote from Genesis 1. It actually comes from the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. Uh, Paul there noted an objection to God's disfavor, an objection we still hear regularly today. The objection was essentially, if God really is the source of all things, if he's really the creator, if he's really the sovereign, how can he judge man because man is a product of what he has done? How can man be responsible if God is in fact sovereign? The implication of such thinking is that man is not responsible for sin or evil. And in fact, it implies that God is responsible. Paul's answer to this accusation was, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou formed me thus? When I was in high school, there was a popular song that was kind of a one-hit wonder. It was called Mr. Big Stuff. And it repeated the phrase over and over again, Mr. Big Stuff, who do you think you are? I always think of that when I read Paul's words in Romans chapter 9. That's really what Paul was telling man. Just who do you think you are? Who, do, who are you to accuse God? So our, te- our text this morning was about the creation of man, but we're asking the question, who do you think you are? Because who we are depends upon what God did in Genesis chapter 1. When we object to anything about God, about his justice, or what he does, we stand in judgment over him. When you're in authority over someone, you speak with a tone of authority. You speak with a tone of authority commensurate with that responsibility that you bear. We speak to children in a way that we do not allow them to speak to us. A judge speaks to all in the courtroom in an executive and commanding manner as one who represents the law, and he doesn't put up with any disrespect to that position in the courtroom. A judge requires deference to his position in the courtroom. So our subject today is really based on the fact that God made man and what we have to remember because we are creatures of God. Man was created by God. He was acted upon by God. In fact, he was brought into existence by God. All that man is came about because of God. 
God first existed, then because of his will and his decree and his power came man. In that context, we have to think, so who do we think we are when we get presumptuous and stand in judgment on God? This belief in created man presupposes a creator God. The alternative to created man is evolved man. Instead of owing his existence to God, evolved man owes his existence to the properties inherent in matter, in matter supposedly. Evolution is necessary to modern man. That's why man won't give it up. Because he sees evolution as a way to deny accountability to God. If historically he can get God out of the picture, then God is just a cultural manifestation to supply some need of man. We have to remember that Darwinism, as Darwin framed it, didn't work. Within a generation after Darwin, we, they, scientists began realizing this doesn't in fact work. Darwinism was based upon natural selection. Natural selection is it basically just genetics, what we call genetics. And we see genetics at work when we look at all the different varieties of dogs that have been bred. And they're still breeding new varieties of dogs. But it was soon realized that there's a limit to what we now know as DNA. It only goes so far. You can have big dogs and little dogs, but you still only get dogs. So they had to add something to natural selection. And evolution is now sometimes referred to as the mutation selection theory. They had to add mutations. That suddenly our DNA somewhere along the line in, in some creature or some plant changed dramatically and that was passed on to future generations. They needed a, a bigger mechanism than Darwin came up. Darwin's theory didn't work, so they just added to it. His time frame didn't work either, so they had to add, keep adding time to try to make it sound more plausible. See, this was all necessary to keep evolution afloat because man wanted evolution. The alternative to created man, then, is evolved man. And if you believe in evolved man, you must believe in evolving man. Man is getting better. So evolution necessitates... A doctrine of man. It creates a doctrine of man, distinct from the doctrine of man that we, we get in the Bible. Darwin described evolution as a biological process. But the ancient world of paganism also had a form of evolution, of development. The, evol the ancient world believed in a what was called a continuity of being. They said all being is one. And you're just on one 
end of the scale or the other. You're only in, in one degree or one status or another along a line of progress. But all being has the same potential. We see this very much in Greek mythology. Men could challenge the gods and actually then become gods themselves, either in this life or in the next state. It's not limited to ancient Greek mythology. Mormonism believes the same thing, that man can become a god. But the Bible starts with man's creation by God. So in biblical thought, God is God and man is man. Man never becomes God. There's a distinction. It's called the creator-creature distinction. Man is a created being and always will be. Man has a ceiling above which he cannot rise. It's not a glass ceiling either. It's a total barrier to man's progress. He is a creature, and man will never be more than a creature. He might be a glorified creature, but even in heaven, he will still be God's creature. This, by the way, makes Jesus that much more distinct and unique in our thinking, because only Jesus is the God-man. Evolution is based on this idea of a continuity of being. And theoretically, in evolution, man has no limits. You see this very much in science fiction. Much of, most of science fiction deals with the idea of the possibility of man's advancement. In the future, man will transcend anything we think possible today. Or perhaps it will, deals with the, our interaction with beings who have evolved further than we have at this point in time. But it, science fiction all, often deals with this potential of man to transcend what we know man to be now. Man transcending his limits and becoming godlike. Of course, it's assumed in evolution that man is going to progress. Nobody ever talks about devolution as a distinct possibility. We want to believe in progress. We really borrow the Christian idea of the progress of the kingdom of heaven and we apply that to a biological process that says everything is, is going to get better. It's a natural fact. Nobody wants to talk about the possibility of devolution. So evolution makes the future of man necessarily good, something positive. Man is evolving. Man even has the possibility to transcend his, what we now call humanity. Now, if you believe this, the ceiling placed on man by the creator-creature distinction becomes offensive. You can't tell men who believe, have a faith in evolution, that he is limited by his creaturehood. Once again, we see the sin of Genesis 3-5 come into view. 
Genesis 3.5 is when Satan first tempted man. And what was the temptation? Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. How does a god know good and evil? Gods determine good and evil for themselves. And that was the temptation to Adam and Eve. Do what you want to do. Do what's in your, to your advantage. Be, act godlike. Act on your inclination to disobey God and you will have a brighter future. Evolution does not talk of gods, but it effectively makes man supreme. If you eliminate God, man is the supreme being, and that leads to what we call humanism. It just changed some labels, but it's effectively making man into his own god. Man is the highest form of evolution, the pinnacle of being according to much modern thought. Though modern thought is, in my lifetime is, is split somewhat. It used to be that man was the pinnacle of evolution. And man is going to do everything. The environmental movement has moved a little towards the saying, no, it's not man. Man maybe as the pinnacle of evolution is messing it up. It's the process. Environmentalism really focuses on the process of evolution, but it's still evolutionary in its thinking. So humanism, however, really lowers the scale of being by removing God. It leaves man without anything higher than himself, which is a pretty pitiful position to be in. Any system that makes man supreme is by definition humanistic. Christians must embrace the, the creator-creature distinction. Christians must say, I am a creature of God. I'm not God. I must not try to act like God or live as though I am my own God. I can't think that I'm God-like. I can't legislate like I'm God. I can't pass judgment on others like I'm God. God created man to be what he intended him to be, and he blessed him. It's our glory to be what God created us to be. And that's why we're told that in Christ, once we are redeemed and regenerated, we're made into new creatures. We go back closer to what Adam was intended to be, and that process will be complete in glory. It's our glory to be God's creatures. It's our glory to be the sheep of his pasture. To find our, perp, our calling in him, we must recognize him and his authority and his grace in our lives. The first sin of Adam and Eve was to act as if they were gods. Something they were not, nor ever could be. Their attempt to transcend their humanity, to transcend the creator-creature distinction, only brought them sin and misery. And it only brings us sin and misery when we follow a life of sin. There's a discontinuity between the uncreated eternal God and finite created man. 
In that Romans 9 passage, Paul compares God's creation of man to a potter making something of clay. Paul asked the question, would a clump of a lump of clay challenge the potter and question why it was formed the way it was? It's a good analogy because it's an absurdity. The believer must say, this is what I was meant to be. I'm satisfied. I only want to be what God intends me to be. And I want to be that new creature and Christ, empowered by His grace to be restored to my created purpose. And we have to remember, we are created in God's providence to be material beings. We're made, Genesis 2, 7 says, of the dust of the ground. What's that mean? We're made from the same elements as the rest of creation. We are material beings. We are made of matter. And we shouldn't see that as, as temporary. Dualism was a Greek philosophy, religion, that saw matter as a, as a lower state and envisions a non-material spiritual realm as a higher plane. I believe when the Bible talks about spiritual, it's not talking about ethereal. Spiritual means in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Spiritual means in the power of, is talking about the power of God. But we don't have to deny our flesh and blood. That's not the source of our problem. There's a false idea that heaven is going to be an ethereal place in the clouds somehow. I think it's going to be a very material place, just as the Garden of Eden was, only there will be no sin. The ancient dualists saw matter as, the, as inherently evil. In fact, they saw that's where evil actually resides. It resides in the material world, and since we're material... That's why we're evil. And if we can transcend our mortality and become spirit beings, then we're free of the evil. That's not what the Bible says is the solution to sin and evil. The Bible says it's redemption and satisfying the justice of God that is only done through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus was incarnate in a material body without sin. Just as Adam and Eve had been incarnate in their creation before sin. It's not our goal to escape matter in this life or the next. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 specifically speaks of the necessity of belief in the physical resurrection of our bodies. It calls the resurrection the the last enemy, or excuse me, it calls death the last enemy that will be destroyed in the resurrection. Our physical bodies will be resurrected, but then changed. They will, are, they will be equated with that which is imperishable, incorruptible, immortal. So we not only are we creatures, we always will be creatures. We don't be, are not going to become gods as in Mormonism. 
The Bible tells us of two limitations on man, neither of which have to do with the fact that we're mortals or in, in, a, in a body. The two limitations are, first of all, that man is a creature of God. Man will never be more than a creature of God. So we must never attempt to be more than a creature of God because being a creature of God is where we find our purpose. The second limitation on man is that he's a sinner. He's fallen. But we shouldn't blame sin on the fact that we have material bodies. That's a Greek idea, not a Christian idea. Our problem is a moral one, not a metaphysical problem. Our salvation is in the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's in forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. Our hope, then, is in the resurrection. Why? The resurrection from death to immortality is because of the victory of Jesus Christ. And we long to see His victory made full in us. He was resurrected because death had no claim on an innocent man. We will be resurrected because his death paid our death penalty. This is why Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who sleep, that is, who've died. So our salvation is from sin and death, not from our bodies. In our changed, resurrected bodies, will be completely sanctified. But we will be in material bodies, not ethereal spirits. Now, I hate to use the term natural because it's often associated with Darwinism. In fact, Darwinism is sometimes referred to as naturalism. But we should think of death as, in a sense, unnatural because it was an intrusion into God's creation. Yes, it was in his providence, but God, death is not the state into which man was originally created or the state to which man will be restored. Christ's resurrection restores us. It frees us from the imposition of death. So in that sense, we think of death being unnatural. Separation from our body at death is what is going to be undone. Christ's resurrection frees us from death, but not from our creatureliness. And not, ultimately, from our material bodies. So what is unique is not our future state, but actually the separation from our bodies that death represents. That's why when you, it, you go past a cemetery, you see all these crosses. That's a Christian, a manifestation of Christian belief in the resurrection of the dead. God's not done with these bodies. That's why traditionally, and I don't think this is a, a, a principle, but it is a tradition, Christians have shied away from cremation. They associated it with paganism, but they said, if God is not done with the bodies, we have to treat the, the deceased with respect, awaiting the resurrection. So the resurrection of the dead reunites the dead with their bodies. God undoes death 
the last enemy, is destroyed in the resurrection. God's created purpose is for us to be creatures in physical bodies. Paul said the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Christ's redemption of us will be complete when we enter eternity in our resurrected, changed bodies. Because we are created, several things follow. First, the creator is the center of all things, not man and not this world. Evolution makes man the center and his world, his needs and wants and concerns primary. The cr- a second natural thing that flows from our creation is that the creator governs all things, not us. Man isn't in charge. Man's authority is always subordinate to his creator's. And unbelief, rebellion against the Creator doesn't convey any exemptions from that authority. Man is always responsible to God, even if he's a rebel. There's no uh, special privilege conveyed on unbelief, as though somehow you're outside now of God's authority, God's jurisdiction. Man is always responsible to God. And will be held accountable to God. God's word is then law to us. No less than it was to Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. This means that man cannot be the source of law or authority or, or ethics. In other words, what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden... That they could determine good and evil. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That was a lie. It was a phony promise. Satan never made good on that. He couldn't. It's not possible for Satan to make good on that promise. It was a lie. For evolution, there is no God effectively. Now, Darwin never specifically rejected God. He didn't need to. Darwin made God irrelevant in his system. He just wrote God out as the creator. God often prefaces things he says in the word, was, I'm the one who made this. I'm the one who made that. Where were you when I made this? God prefaces much of what he says later in his word with the fact of his creative power. Darwin just made God irrelevant in his system. Darwin posited God and all religion is a latecomer. Now, if you think that men existed for untold eons, and then at some point, thousands of years ago, men decided that they needed to start worshiping deities, you see, that's a latecomer. It's an outpouring of man's evolution but in reality, if that's your thinking, that religion, that worship is largely meaningless. It's just a cultural manifestation of the psyche of man as he evolves. Darwin removed the basis of man's accountability to God. That's why we need to be fully aware of our creaturehood and therefore our accountability to God. 
In fact, Darwin really destroyed any basis for any accountability, any morality, any law. How did Darwin say man advanced himself? By pretty ugly means. Chaos, violence, survival of the strongest, even if it meant murder, and every other imaginable evil. That's how things advance. This is why revolution has been such an important theme in the modern world. If man has gotten to this point by violence and chaos, throwing off what is old and past, and that progress therefore ensues, then wouldn't that be socially true? If we think that Christianity is outdated, and holding us back, then don't we want to get rid of it? If we think of the Christian norms and Christian ethics and, and uh, the way things have been done for a long time are actually holding our evolutionary progress back, then shouldn't we just repudiate it, get rid of it, destroy it, so we can move forward? They believe in the power, the regenerative power of chaos and revolution. And we see that very much in the modern world. Destroy it. Something better will, is sure to follow. And as Christians, we know that's not the case. Much of the anarchism we see in modern man is based on Darwinism. Man is an animal and survives by survival at all costs. And there's no rational basis for morality in Darwinism. Darwin set the stage for lawless man, irresponsible man, revolutionary man. He said all ethics are really arbitrary. If, if Darwin isn't, is true, then there's no rational reason for morality. Evolution rests, however, not on science, but on faith. The same faith that Satan offered Eve, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Evolution interprets the facts based on this assumption. As someone once said, the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God, and evolution begins with, in the beginning, not God. And that's where the thinking diverges. And so that's why our talk is really about our accountability to God. It's based upon creation. By the way, uh, Henry Morris, who wrote one of the, the classic works, co-wrote one of the classic works on creationism in the middle of the 20th century called The, the Genesis uh, Flood, made, in another one of his works, he made a good observation about uh, Genesis 1.1. He said it's just not just a flowery language, sort of a introducing the creation week. He said... That's actually part of the day one. He, he says that's, those are creative acts there in Genesis 1.1. We sometimes just skip over it. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said that represents the creation of space, time, and matter. In the beginning, that's time. Because what are we told about heaven? There's no time there. God created the heavens and the earth. He created space. 
The earth is matter. So time, space, and matter were created by God at the beginning of the creation week as its starting point, and then God began forming what contained. But what does evolution do? Time, space, and matter, they basically, they don't use this term, but they eternalize them. There's always been space, always been time, there's always been matter. And let's just mix them together and give them billions of years and let's believe that something came from them. And that's our origins. That's our genesis. It's not science. That's a faith. In that same resurrection passage of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. He was the true Adam, the faithful Adam. The man Adam failed to be. Adam, or Paul, excuse me. Paul then told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's the new birth, the making of all things new. It begins in us. Paul told the believers, believers at Ephesus, to put on the new man, which after God has created in righteousness and true holiness. And when he said, put on the new man, that's a command. Assume the new man. Assume what God is making you. Be what God intended you to be. And we should point out that, yes, we're united to Christ, But we're united to Christ as the last Adam, as the perfect man. We share in Christ's perfect humanity, and that is being worked out in us, and it will be fully in heaven. But we never share in Christ's divinity. That is his alone. So our purpose is to be God's creatures. And by his spirit, he recalls us to that role. God recalls us to be his creatures and emphasizes that transformation in us by his justification and his sanctifying power. A common rationale for all sorts of rebellion has been, I need to find myself. I can't be held down by the past or my parents or the traditions. I just need to find out who I am. That's what the Bible's all about. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, it tells you you are a sinner. And you need God's grace. If you turn from God, you will only find who you are in Adam. If you want to find out who God made you to be, you need to turn to his redeeming grace and find yourself in Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Make it your joy to be God's creature. And believe, again, as Paul said, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our most good and gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for who you are. Help us to understand who we are. Help us to glory into being your creatures. Help us never to seek anything more. 
Help us to be wary of those who seek to be more. Protect us from those who seek to be more than your creatures. Give us a humility that results in obedience. Give us a greater sense of our obligation to serve you because of your grace that has restored us to our created purpose of serving you. And we pray that your sanctifying work in us through your spirit would would be more and more effective. We realize that we are still sinners. We realize that we fall short in many areas. Call us to remembrance when we fail you in word or thought or deed. And give us the assurance of your forgiveness and the power of your spirit to continue to sanctify us so that we might learn to grow in grace throughout all the days that your grace gives us. We ask this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen.